brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Nothing is worse than a woman scorned, unless that woman is me. We have heard this phrase repeated throughout our lives. Sometimes it's vengeance that's in the eye of the beholder. Some women have just been traumatized by life's events and it turns their heart cold. Sometimes they're just born evil. I told you that I have a fascination with serial killers. True crime, it really is something that I'm obsessed with. There is a darkness on the earth, and that darkness lies in the heart of these murderers. We hear about their evil acts, and we try to understand why they do what they do. We are fascinated, but also repulsed by what they've done, and like a train wreck, we cannot look away. Now, when we hear of serial killers, the general population will think of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, to name a few. But there are women who have killed. There are women who have killed more than all of these men combined. Now, this episode is going to be speaking or discussing women who are serial killers. So this warning that this podcast is going to include sensitive topics and graphic situations regarding crimes that might not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The first person we're going to start with is Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth, Elizabeth was born in 1560 in Hungary as a noblewoman. Now, once you hear her story, noble is probably not going to be the term that you will use as we would use noble today. Now, since these murders took place almost 500 years ago, the facts could be embellished to continue the lore and make the stories more intriguing. But let's look at her past. As a child, Bathory suffered uh, multiple seizures that may have been caused by epilepsy, possibly stemming from the inbreeding of her parents. At the time, symptoms relating to epilepsy were diagnosed as falling sickness and treatments included rubbing blood of a non-sufferer on the lips of the epileptic or giving the epileptic a mix of the non-sufferer's blood and a piece of skull as their episode ended. It's a little bit weird, um, but it was the science of the day, and you've got to trust the science, as we've always been hearing. Now, there are stories that Elizabeth was raised to be cruel. There are reports of her being forced to view and participate in tortures and witchcraft. Now, again, these are stories, they are lore. Are they true? I don't know. At the age of 10, 
Elizabeth was betrothed to Ferenc Nadasi, an aristocrat of Hungarian family. Wow, that word is really difficult. But at the age of 13, after her promise in marriage, she gave birth to someone who was not of noble standing. Story has it that her low-order lover was castrated, then torn apart by dogs. Her child was a little girl who was hidden away from public view. Elizabeth did end up marrying Ferenc when she was 15. Uh, Now, Elizabeth socially outranked her husband, so she kept her surname of Bathory, and her husband actually changed his name to her surname. Now, just a side note, I've been watching Game of Thrones, and I love how they introduce themselves. So, you know, they would announce with their name, their first name, I like I would do, I am Holly from the House of Cuck, daughter of Albert of Walksville. It's just like, today's introduction is like, how you doing? It's just not the same. I just find it so classy, and you, but it's also super long. <laughs> Like, oh my God, just give me your name. I just thought it was cute. Anyway, her husband was away a lot uh, being part of the army and Elizabeth had to run the estate and do all of that stuff. Now she did take on lovers while her husband was gone. Uh, She did end up with four children and was widowed by the age of 48 in 1604. Rumors of her sadistic activities started to surface. Bathory's first victims were girls between ages 10 to 14 years old. Her enjoyment of torturing and killing young girls. She believed uh, that, um, it is believed, I should say, that she was fascinated with blood. Now, I can think, if you look back at her childhood, they were putting blood on her lips for these epileptic seizures they were giving her blood all the time from non-sufferers. So I can see where this kind of comes into play. Now, there was also rumors that she would uh, drain her victims of their blood and then bathe in it because she was uh, she would believe that it would maintain her youth. Yikes. Also, not only about her youth, but they also speculated that she was trying to cure her epilepsy because... She was told, put it on your lips, get it in your body. Why not bathe in it? Now, she was starting with peasant girls in her kingdom. uh, And then there were local gentry families that would send their daughters for lessons on manners to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth would use them for her sick and twisted bloodletting ways. Now, I am going to issue a graphic warning again because there are some descriptive... um, torture that is going to be coming up and I know I gave a warning before but I'm giving it again if you didn't hear it the first time because you're not paying attention okay here we go witnesses uh, say that she stabbed her victims she bit their breasts their hands their faces and their arms she would cut them with scissors she would stick needles into their lips or under their fingernails She would burn them with red hot irons, coins, keys, anything she could get hot and and burn them with. She would also beat them or starve them to death. This is just brutal. It's just, it really is brutal. It is like total Game of Thrones. Um, 
Now, there was a Lutheran minister who became, uh, started questioning some things, and he actually ended up going to the authorities in 1610, and an investigation was opened. Now, in December of that year, Elizabeth was arrested, and so were her servants. Now, here's the part that, like, still pisses me off, because I, I know stuff like this still happens today. Now, three of her servants were executed. One was sentenced to life in prison. But she was not even put on trial because of her family's standing. She was restricted to the castle grounds and held in solitary confinement where she died in 1614. Her death count is said to be over 600 people. I have a big problem with people getting away with stuff because they have a name. And we all know that this happens in society still today. If you are guilty, you pay the you pay the crime. It shouldn't matter what your social standing is, who your dad is, how much money he makes. If you commit a crime, you get punished like everybody else does. But we all know that money talks and bullshit walks. The next person we're going to talk about is Jane Topin. Now, Jane was actually born as Honora Kelly. And her nickname was Jolly Jane. She was born in 1854 in Boston, Massachusetts. Honora grew up in Boston in a female asylum where unwanted female children were abandoned. Now, Nora, or as she was called, um, Nora, as she was called, not Honora, uh, was there with her sister, Delia. Nora was fostered as an indentured servant to a widow named Anna Topin. Anna is the one who changed Nora's name from uh, to Jane Tobin. Jane's sister Delia was not fortunate enough to be an indentured servant, so she was sent to be a prostitute when she became of age. This is... <laughs> she wasn't fortunate enough to be, to be an indentured servant, so she was not fortunate enough to go and be slave labor to someone and do everything that they wanted... She had to be a prostitute. I mean, I mean, I guess I'd rather be an indentured servant having to cook and clean and do whatever than be a prostitute. But to say that she was fortunate not to be one or the other, I don't know. Jane was freed from her servitude at the age of 18 um, by the lady that adopted her. But Jane decided that she wanted to stay with this lady. So she, uh, she, you know, she was allowed to take $50 and she was supposed to go and find her way in the world. And she decided to just stay and be the servant, uh, for the family until Anne had passed away. Uh, Jane then left and went to Cambridge hospital to become a nurse. Very, I mean, to go from being, uh, unwanted to, you know, living in someone's home to going to be a nurse, that is the American dream. Now, here's where the story starts to take a twist. She was a student nurse and uh, she was well liked by her patients, but she would falsify their records to keep them in the hospital longer so she could get to know them better. She also developed strong dislike for elderly patients feeling it was useless and not worth it to keep them alive. She killed at least a dozen while she was a student nurse. She would dose the elderly patients with opium just to see how they would react to the drug, sometimes upping the drug to watch them suffer and die. 
She worked as a private nurse for families around the Boston area without detection, killing older family members and stealing their belongings. She even killed her landlords, fellow doctors, nurses, and friends as she got bored with their company. She wasn't caught until she used a metallic-based poison on a victim, which finally sparked the investigation. Now, she did go to court in 1902. She was not found, she was found not guilty. Uh, she then told her attorney that she had killed more than 100 people and sometimes got into bed with their victims as they convulsed from the poison. She was immediately scheduled for another trial and sentenced to life in an asylum. Now, when she initially got to the asylum and she refused to eat, uh, she was actually afraid that her food would be poisoned. Shock. Which the newspapers gloated as ironic revenge. She ended up staying at the asylum until she died in 1983 at the age of 81. Wow, I was nine years old when she passed away. Interesting. Uh, there was um, a lot of media resurgency after her death, uh, you know, because they claimed that she was America's first serial killer. Um, I didn't find a ton on her background and maybe I just didn't do the right search. Some of these people, uh, we are going to get in a lot more in depth. Um, I don't know if it's because some of the stories are a lot older, so they don't have as much detail. Some of them I found way too much detail. <laughs> I realized I got to cut some of this or you're going to be listening to me talk for hours and nobody wants that. We're going to move on to the next person. Uh, Nanny Doss. Nanny was born as Nanny Hazel in 1905. Uh, now she has been referred to the giggle as the giggling granny. She's the lonely heart killer, the black widow, the lady bluebeard. Uh, she was also called the self-made widow by newspapers. Now much of her childhood was spent avoiding the wrath of her father who ruled the family with an iron fist. If his children were needed to work on the farm, he did not hesitate to pull them from school. With education a low priority, there were no objections when Nanny decided to leave school for good, for good after completing the sixth grade. Now, I'm going to tell you that my grandmother was born in 1924, and she was the first person in her family to graduate high school. And I think she might have been one of the only ones that graduated because all the boys were pulled out of school at like 11 or 12 because they needed to have them on the farm. Uh, she was fortunate enough to graduate high school and she graduated high school at the age of 16. Uh, now she also did have things that she had to do on the farm. So I see this. I mean, this is like pre-depression. This is where people just needed to have their kids to work the farms and education was not a priority. If you wanted to know stuff, you had to learn it. But the education back then was a lot better than it is now. Back years ago, you went to school, you learned your reading, your arithmetic, you studied that stuff. Now it's like, choose your pronoun. Give me a break. But anyway, when Nanny was seven, uh, she actually was in an accident on a train. Uh, the train had to suddenly stop and it actually caused her to fall forward and hit her head. After the accident, she suffered years of migraines, blackouts, and depression. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, like I have been mentioning before, I think in a previous podcast, that serial killers, some serial killers have had brain trauma, and they think that it does affect something in the brain that causes people to do things. This is one of those situations 
where, I mean, she had an abusive father. I don't, I don't want to say abusive, but he ran with an iron fist. He was probably a scary guy. Um, he, she had this accident where she had brain trauma. I mean, she's got two of the three things down already. Now, Nanny's father would not allow her, excuse me, to have friends. She wasn't allowed to be friends with boys. Uh, and she was not allowed to do anything that enhanced her outward appearance. So no makeup, no pretty dresses. She was not allowed to have any social interaction with boys. And uh, she never even had real inter interactions with boys besides her brothers uh, until she had turned the age of 16 and got her first job. When Nanny started working in a factory, she met a man named Charlie Braggs. And within five months, they were married. She moved in with Charlie and his mother, whom Charlie would take care of. Now, Nanny and Charlie um, had their first uh, of four children in 1923. Uh, now, Nan once they got to the four children and she was taking care of the mother-in-law, she was, she just felt imprisoned because Charlie was out florinding. He was abusive. You know, he was sleeping with other women. And then soon, Nanny started going out and drinking and going to bars and sleeping with other men for fun. Sounds like a really wonderful relationship. Now, in that weird turn of events, in 1927, two, uh, child two and three died from food poisoning. Suspecting that Nanny was responsible, Charlie took the oldest daughter, Mel Melvina, and uh, left the baby Florine with Nanny. Uh, soon, Charlie, um, after, sorry, soon after Charlie left, his mother had passed away, but Nanny remained in the family home for about a year. And then Charlie came back with Melvina and a new girlfriend, kicked Nanny out of the house and Nanny left to start a new life. Nanny decided, you know what? I'm single. I'm ready to mingle. Let's look in the local newspaper. The local newspaper had a, what was called a Lonely Hearts column. It's kind of like online dating, but in paper. And this is where she met husband number two, who was Robert. Uh, she was 24 when they married. Uh, they did move. Uh, she took Melvina and Florine and went to Alabama. Now, this marriage actually lasted 16 years, but... She did have a lot of issues. Again, she had a husband who was always drinking. He was drunk. He was in debt. And one of his favorite pastimes was bar fights. Now, in 1943, Melvina would have her first child with Robert and then another one in 1945, a little girl who actually died soon after birth. Melvina swore uh, she saw her mother stick a hat pin uh, in the baby's head uh, so there's no proof that this was ever happening, but it's not really, if she did this, it just is making me sick right now. Now in 1945, Robert died of asphyxia from unknown causes. Uh, nanny collected a $500 life insurance policy. Um, it would be years later that Nanny would describe him coming home drunk and raping her. So she poured rat poison in his whiskey and watched him die a painful death. Now, Nanny, you know, she's lonely again. So she's on to husband number three. Could three times be the charm? 
She met Arlie in the classified section and married him within two days. Now, <laughs> two days. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. But uh, they would only be married for two and a half years and then Arlie would meet his fate. The official cause of the death was that he had a heart attack brought on by the flu. Now, Arlie left the home to his sister and it burned down about two months later. Nanny um, was actually in the house at the time because she wouldn't leave. So uh, she actually got to collect the insurance money and flew the coop. Not mysterious at all. It doesn't sound like there's any nefarious crap going on there. Now, Nanny actually went to see her sister, Dovey, who uh, was died actually while in her care. And then she went on to husband number four. Now, she decided the classifieds were not for her. She was going to go to a singles club and she joined Diamond Circle Club, where she met Richard Morton, who she married in 1952. And they lived in Kansas. Now, unlike her previous husbands, Richard was not an alcoholic, but he d uh, and he did not cheat on her. Oh, I'm sorry. No, he did cheat on her. Um, because she could kill her husband. Her father passed away. And her mother came to see her. Within days of her mother's arrival, her mother started complaining of severe stomach cramps and then died. Then, of course, three months later, Richard met his fate. Now, I'm wondering, and she's not just marrying all these guys. Are they, oh, I, I guess there's not, there, you know, there's no social media. She didn't have to tell any of these people that she was ever married before. She could be like, oh, you know, you're my first guy. And FYI, I'll be sending out pictures of these people. She was not a catch. So she must have been a fireball in bed because I can't imagine that all of these men were physically attracted to her, but I digress. Uh, while she was planning the death of husband number four, she was already working on husband number five. That's right. Nanny. Go nanny. Uh, she was always on the lookout for her next ex-husband. Nanny decided that she was going to move to Oklahoma to be with Samuel Doss. Now Samuel was a minister who was dealing with the death of his wife and had not I'm sorry, and nine of his children. Those nine children and his wife were actually killed by a tornado. That's just horrible and traumatic. Doss was a good man, but he was not a drunk. He didn't sleep around. He didn't abuse her. He was a church-going, God-fearing man. So will he survive the nanny wrath? No. No, he will not. You know why? Because he was frugal and boring. There was a regimented life. They had a very strict schedule. And he was tight with the purse strings and that pissed her off. So what did she do? She decided that she was going to leave and move back to Alabama and told Samuel that she would only return if he added her to the checking account. Well, he decided to add her to the account so she could have access to the money. And then she convinced him to take out not one, but two life insurance policies. Anybody see where this is going? And, oh, and I should also point out that she was the only beneficiary on both of those policies. At this point, I know love is blind, but um, seriously, did he not see anything coming? I mean, again, she must have been a fireball in bed. Just saying. 
Soon, Samuel was hospitalized and complained of stomach pain. After two weeks in the hospital, he fight, uh, he had fought hard and he was discharged. After one home-cooked meal by his beloved nanny, he passed away. Now, this was her ultimate mistake. Samuel was a minister. He was not some unknown drunk from a bar. Doctors were alarmed at his passing and ordered a, an autopsy where they found his organs were full of arsenic. Nanny was caught. She confessed to killing four of her husbands, her mother, her sister, her grandson, and Arlie Lanning's mother. Nanny even joked about murdering her husbands. I mean, I mean, we all joke about it. Not that we would ever actually do it. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, though, some days I do want to put my hands around him neck and choke him. But, I mean, she was 50 years old, given a life sentence. She only served eight years and then died of leukemia. Now, she was actually only ever charged with one of the 11 people that she murdered. But I guess it only took one to get her that life sentence. Sick. Sick, sick, sick. Now, our next lovely young lady, her name is Amelia Dyer. Now, Amelia, I mean... There's some really bad people on this list. You know, the woman killing her husbands and everybody. And, uh, you know, we have Elizabeth Battery who, you know, seemed a little sick in the head. Inbred and, uh, you know, seizures and stuff. She had a lot of brain issues. But this lady right here. This lady. Um, yeah. Amelia was born in 1836 in a small village outside of Bristol. This is in England. And she was the second youngest of six children. She was well-educated, and she got to spend her time reading literature and poetry. Now, she had lost a sister named Sarah Ann, who was um, age six in 1841. And then um, her parents had another baby, who they also named Sarah Ann, uh, probably as a respect to the daughter who passed away. But this second Sarah Ann also passed away within a few months. Uh, so Amelia did have issues. She had a mother who was abusive. Her mother actually had a mental illness and suffered from violent outbreaks. And then they ended up losing her mother who had developed typhus. Amelia, though, did care for her mother until uh, her death in 1848. After Amelia's mother passed away, she moved uh, in with an aunt in Bristol for a time, then moved on to serve as an apprenticeship, uh, uh, an apprenticeship with a corset maker. She had lost touch with most of her family, and when her father died in 1859, her oldest brother inherited the father's shoe business. In 1861, Amelia realized she was permanently estranged from her brothers and moved to Trinity Street in Bristol. There, she met and married George Thomas. Now, George was 59 and she was 24. And they actually ended up lying about their ages to close the gap so that it didn't seem like a tawdry affair because age mattered apparently in this, at this time, not in medieval times. I mean, they would marry off a 12 year old girl to like a 40 year old guy, but this is where it mattered, I guess. Now, after marrying George, Amelia decided she was going to train to be a nurse. And it was at this time she came in contact with a midwife and found an easier way to make a living. She would use her own home to provide lodgings for young women who had conceived illegitimate children and then sell the babies for adoption. 
Unmarried mothers during the Victorian period often struggled to gain an income since the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act, which had removed any financial obligation from the fathers of illegitimate children. Uh, while bringing up their children in a society where single parent and Ill illegitimacy were stigmatized. This led to the practice of baby farming, in which individuals acted as adoption and fostering agents in order to regular payments, I'm sorry, in return for regular payments or a single upfront fee from the baby's mothers. Many businesses were set up to take in these young women and care for them until they gave birth. The mothers subsequently left their unwanted babies to be looked at as after a nurse or um sorry left their one unwanted babies to be looked after as nurse children. I'm having a hard time speaking tonight. This is where it's going to get really disturbing because Amelia became an unscrupulous caregiver who res resorted to starving some of these babies. And she would sedate the louder and demanding babies with alcohol or opioids. Mothers who chose to reclaim or simply check on the welfare of their children could often encounter difficulties, but some would simply be too frightened or ashamed to tell the police about any suspected wrongdoing. Even the authorities had uh, problems tracing any children that were reported missing. Now, Amelia had lost her husband in 1869, and this is how she was going to make money and gain income by baby farming. She took in some of the expected women and advertised adopting babies. She assured them that, that she was respectable and married and that she would provide a safe and loving home for the children. Liar! In 1872, Amelia married William Dyer, a brewer's laborer of Bristol. They had two children together, Marianne, who was also known as Polly, and William Samuel. Um, uh, Amelia eventually left her husband, but at some point in her baby farming career, Dyer decided to forego the expense and inconvenience of letting the children die through neglect and starvation. Soon after the recipient of each child, she just murdered them, and then she got to keep the fee all to herself. For some time, Dyer had eluded the resulting interests of the police, and she was eventually caught in 1879 after a doctor was suspicious about the number of child deaths he had been called to certify in Dyer's care. However, instead of being convicted of murder or manslaughter, she was sentenced to six months of hard labor for neglect. I'm sorry, murdering a child and neglecting a child are two different things, but let's move on. The experience allegedly almost destroyed her mentally. Oh, the shame and horror, hard labor over murdering babies. Mm -hmm. Though others have expressed incredulity at the leniency of the sentence when compared to those handed out for lesser crimes. Exactly. She, she got away with murder. I mean, literally got away with murder. Upon release, she attempted to resume her nursing career, but with her spells in the hospitals due to her alleged, alleged mental instability and suicidal tendencies, she was not going to be able to do that. So um, it appears to have begun uh, that uh, she had started abusing alcohol and opium-based products. Uh, her mental instability grew, and in 1890, Dyer 
cared for the illegitimate governor, I'm sorry, illegitimate baby of a governess. When she returned to visit the child, the governess was immediately suspicious and stripped the baby to see if the birthmark was present on one of his hips, and it wasn't, and prolonged suspicions by the authorities led Dyer uh, to another breakdown, Dyer at one point drank two bottles of poison in a serious suicide attempt. But because of her long-term abuse that was built up in her body from opium products, she survived. Oh, yes. So anyway, so after another stay in a mental facility, she ended up returning to baby farming and murder. She realized the folly of involving doctors to issue death certificates, so she began disposing of the bodies herself. The precarious nature and extent of her activities again prompted undesirable actions. She was alerted to the attention of the police and uh, parents who were seeking to reclaim their children. So she just kept relocating, trying to escape suspicion, regain anonymity, and acquiring new business. So over the year, Dyer used a succession of aliases. In 1893, Amelia was charged once again, I'm sorry, discharged once again from another mental health facility, and she hated the experience so much that she never returned to another mental health facility. I don't know how she kept getting out. The lady was obviously insane. Uh, now she moved to Berkshire, and she was known as Jane Granny Smith, whom Amelia met. I'm sorry. She moved in with someone named Jane Granny Smith, who Amelia had met at the workhouse. Amelia told Jane that she would refer to her as mother in front of the women so that people would actually think she was actually a wonderful, loving mother. In 1896, Evelina Marmon, who gave birth who was 25, gave birth to a child out of wedlock. Uh, she was about to advertise for someone to take her caring uh, her child to a caring family, and then she saw Amelia's ad about being someone who had taken children. So her plan, Evelina's plan, was that she was going to hand this baby over to Amelia. She was going to work really hard and hopefully get that child back in about a year or two so that she could care for her. Well, Evelina was so sad to see her child go that she even traveled part of the trip back with Amelia just to spend those last few moments with her baby. But once they parted, Dyer took the baby to London, not the address that she had given to Evelina, and using white edging tape to wrap the baby's neck, watched the baby suffer. She was even quoted as saying that she liked to watch them with the tape around their neck suffer because um just watch them die now on march 30th 1896 there was a package that was retrieved from the thames river in reading the package dyer dumped was not weighted adequately and had been easily spotted it contained the body of a baby girl who was later identified as helena fry in the small detective force available to Reading Borough Police, there was a detective, Constable Anderson, who made the crucial breakthrough. There was a label. She left a label on the box. Mrs. Thomas and an address. 
With no way to prove that Amelia was the killer, the detective came up with a plan. They would use a young boy as a decoy, hoping to secure a meeting. Well, Dyer thought they were meeting with a new client, uh, but instead she found detectives waiting on her doorstep, and on April 3rd, the police raided her home. They were struck by the stench of human decomposition, although no human remains were found. There was, however, plenty of other related evidence, including the white edging tape, telegrams regarding adoption arrangements, pawn tickets for children's clothing, receipts for advertisements, and letters from mothers who were just inquiring about the well-being of their children. Police speculate that she killed over 400 children, and Amelia is one of the most prolific serial killers in the world. On the 22nd of May, 1896, uh, um, Amelia appeared before a judge, and the trial held uh, had a lot of evidence. In the end, the jury only deliberated for four and a half minutes before finding her guilty. In her final three weeks in her cell, she filled five books with her confessions. On June 10th, 1896, she was hanged. Her reign of terror on the weak and the innocent was finally over. It is amazing to me that these women were able to go on for so long to do so many things and just keep going. How does that continuously happen? How do they just keep going from person to person? doing all of this. I mean, I guess it's like with anything. They they can figure it out. They can do it. They are able to continue so many things. But it's like, I almost wonder how they're able to just get away with it. I, I don't know. It's just, it certainly is interesting. Now, I have a list. I have a list of like so many of these women who kill. So this is going to be the first part of probably about three or four segments. Uh, <clears throat> it is a lot of research. It's a lot of looking up. Some of these stories have, I kind of combined some stories uh, because some of them list things like Elizabeth Bathory. There were some that said that she never bathed in blood of her victims, but then there were like six others that did. So I took the information from what most people were reporting, but it is from the 1500s. What is made up? What is local lore? I don't think we're ever going to know for sure, unless we have a able to time travel and view everything ourselves. But there is a fascination with serial killers and I know it's not just me and these ladies they're evil and they did not disappoint I, I, I do have I think I don't even remember how many I have and that was just some of the major ones there's probably some other ones out there that I didn't even get to yet their evil knows no boundaries and their crimes are just vile 
especially Amelia, killing the innocent of the innocent, these tiny little babies who were born, who just want love, and she just saw them as money. It's sick. But if we think about it, let's, let's look at somebody like Elizabeth Bathory. Her true love was castrated and torn apart by dogs. That is super traumatic. And then she's forced into marriage. Her family has inbred. She's been having seizures. That's a lot of issues for someone to deal with. And she dealt with them at such a young age. I mean, I don't know about you, but at like 13, I wasn't having sex. I was playing with Barbie dolls and having fun with my friends. I wasn't even thinking about boys. Nanny Doss was brought up in an abusive relationship. Amelia Dyer had to care for her crazy mom and lost two of her sisters. Jane was abandoned. Uh, you know, she was in bad relationships. She was beaten. I mean, maybe because of all those bad relationships, it was a form of protection. I'm not making excuses. But people have something that happens to them when there is a tragic, a traumatic event. It's like their psyche breaks. It's almost like the right and wrong button gets switched off. Now, sometimes the brain doesn't heal from those traumatic events either. It changes behavior. I mean, again, I am not excusing what these ladies did because a lot of it was vile. A lot of it was self-serving. But at some point, we have to start saying you need to stop yourself. But if we think about it from a serial killer's perspective, are they able to stop themselves? Like, are you, do they even know that they're doing something wrong? Because in their mind, it feels like the right thing to do. Now, Amelia Dyer confessed all of her sins. She wrote everything she did in a five books. She filled up five books. That's a lot of murders. Serial killers are just evil people. And the debate on them will live on long after we are ashes in the wind. But the one thing that this shows is that a stable home life, a lot of love, you know, good, you know, a mom, a dad, knowing that you're loved, knowing that you're cared for, knowing that someone is there for you, that someone has your back, to have a good relationship with your parents, your brothers, get your education, it does shape us. It does make us better people. There's not many times that you hear of serial killers who had the best life. Usually someone who is murdering someone and, and, and the serial killer perspective, there was traumatic events that shaped them. You know, is it because, um, I don't remember which one it was. Was it Nanny or Jane? 
that had the uh, accident on the train? Could the brain not have healed or bumped that area of the brain that took away their perspective of being able to determine what's right or wrong? We don't know. There's so much science and data that they try to collect from serial killers. If you um, are a serial killer fan like I am, and it's mostly because I, I kind of want to understand. I want to understand why or how someone can do what they do. Uh, watch Mindhunters on Netflix. If you have Netflix, I suggest this show. It's about um, these two gentlemen who are with, I think it's the FBI, who are trying to get into the psychological aspect of why serial killers kill and they actually interview uh, it's set in the 60s or 70s I think and they are going through and interviewing all these different serial killers trying to get perspectives why they do what they do um, it's actually really well written and I don't think they came out with a season three so I'm not even sure if there is another season uh, but it's still an interesting perspective of what's happening how the whole psychological aspects uh, got started with the FBI and how we're trying to understand serial killers more and more. I, I do believe that, you know, we had more God in our life. We wouldn't have as many serial killers because you would know what's right from wrong. You would know that you don't harm other people unless it's in self-defense. You just love each other. And God will guide you. And I, I believe that is the guide to a better tomorrow. Where we can live in harmony. And not have to worry about these crazy ladies. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Damn It With Beaver. If you did, please like, follow, and share. Uh, we are on most podcast po platforms. Uh, Spreaker, Spotify, Podcast, Podcast Chaser. Uh, I'm sorry, Pod Chaser, Deezer, iTunes, Google Podcasts, um, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to a podcast, you can hear Damn It With Beaver. You can get me on the socials at Damn It, with, at Damn it Beaver on Twitter. Uh, I am on Instagram, Damn It With Beaver. And if you want to reach out, if you have any show suggestions or any comments, you can email me, dammitwithbeaver at gmail.com. And don't forget, like, follow, and share. You guys are my word of mouth right now. Um, you know, I have no budget to advertise. So you have to help me get the word out and spread uh, Damn It With Fever. And uh, don't forget, don't let the world get you down. You just say, damn it, and move on. Beaver out. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.